If you've been around me enough, you uh, start to know that I like to read poetry before meetings. Uh, and I realize that when I read poetry before meetings, some people that uh, are at the meetings tune out because once they hear the word poem, uh, they're done. And that might be you. Uh, it might bring back high school English class days, and when you hear uh, the idea that a poem is going to be read, you're done. Well, I hope you might indulge me this morning to read from one of the best poets of the 20th century. Maybe you know this one, and if you do, you can finish it with me. Does that sound good? Okay, here we go. I had a friend was a big baseball player back in high school. He could throw that speed ball by you, make you look like a fool, boy. Saw him the other night at this roadside bar. I was walking in. He was walking out. He went back inside, sat down, had a few drinks, but all he kept talking about was... Oh, man, nice. Well, they'll pass you by... In the wing of a young girl's eyes. Oh, nice. Man, not bad. Not bad. Well, you, some of you know the poet. Bruce Springsteen, the boss. For you that are under the age of 20, you probably don't know who we're talking about. Maybe under 30. But Bruce Springsteen is one of the best poets of the 20th century. In his 1985 hit, Glory Days is what I just read from, is a sad song. It is telling the story of remembering younger days, days past, and how this writer of the song, whoever it is, whether it's the boss being the person, how he goes and meets other people, and they realize, realize that the way that they deal with their current pain is just remembering the days of old and their past. Today, we are going to hear some people singing a sad song of glory days. At the same time, we are going to hear people singing praises about where they are currently. How about you? Are you singing glory days, a sad song? Or are you singing praises right now? What does it take to sing praises now, even when things have gotten rough, and all you want to do is long for what was? Let's look and see, shall we? Ezra chapter 3. I know it's a longer reading, and some of you might tune out when we read this kind of stuff. Please pay attention. Look, put yourself in the story of Ezra chapter 3. When the seventh month came, and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua, the son of Josadak, with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtel, with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, 
burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the feast of booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon, and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and all the offerings of everyone who made a freewill offering to the Lord. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters, and food, drink, and oil um, to the Sidonians and to the um, uh, Trinians, who bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year, after their coming to the house of the God at Jerusalem, in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josadak, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord, and Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses, old men, who had been the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy. So the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah this fall all the way to the new year. And if you don't know a little bit of the history of this, I'll explain it again. It, this, these books tell of the return of the Jewish people from exile. It tells a hundred year history in three parts. Verses, chapters 1 through 6 of Ezra are kind of told as the main character of Zerubbabel the one building the temple. And this takes place in a 20-year period. Then the book fast-forwards 60 more years to Ezra chapter 7 through 10. And then the major character is Ezra. And he is a priest that comes and brings reforms, religious and moral reforms, to Israel. And then the last 20 years within that 100-year scope is the book of Nehemiah. Through the character, Nehemiah is the main character, and he leads the people to building walls around the city of Jerusalem. From anyone on the outside looking at Israel at this point in time, this was probably not the highlight of Israelite history for anyone looking at this nation. They had been defeated by three separate kingdoms, the Assyrians 200 years ago, the Babylonians 50 years prior to this book, and now they're under the reign of the Persians. You have to realize when the Israelites came out of Egypt, 
hundreds of years earlier than this, they came out with 600,000 people out of that exile and slavery. Now, out of Babylon, they come out with merely 50,000 people. The nation has been depleted. The land has been overrun by foreign nations. There is no military to speak of. And again, they are under the oversight of a foreign nation, the Persian Empire. The question is, how are they going to recapture the glory of Israel? It can be dangerous to compare our present age to the age I'm speaking about right here in Ezra. And in no means should we equate our nation, the United States, to the nation of Israel. If any comparison needs to take place to Israel of old, it is to the church of today. Those caveats put in place, I do feel like there is a similar kind of disposition that we see in Ezra to the moment we are living in right now. We are coming back to offices that are bare. Some of you have maybe not even returned to your offices. Coming back to churches that are not full as many people still watch online. There's a feeling of trepidation in our nation. A feeling like the best days are behind us. And there's just this weird feeling in the United States, a place that is typically very optimistic, that's kind of who we are as a people, that as much as we try our optimism half glass full, we wonder how things are going to go. Maybe some of you, over the past two weeks, watched some of the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, And you saw some of the unity that our nation gathered together after that event. I have to admit that those 20 years feel like a lifetime ago. Where are those days of unity gone? They feel like forever ago. Can anything unite us again as a nation? What are we to do? How do we reclaim the glory? Is there a path forward for us? I think looking right here at these exiles and how they return home might give us some thoughts about this this morning. So let's look, shall we? Here we go. We have in the first two years, chapter three of their return, and we see two major building um, things being laid. One, the altar into the temple, the temple foundation specifically. So these first two structures are built within these first two years. And again, I talked about the significance of these kind of structures. Again, Jerusalem, the temple, the altar, they signified communion with God, his presence with his people, the ability for them to worship him and be in communion with him. You might ask, how do they know to do such things as this? How do they know that this is what it takes to have the presence of God? Well, we can see in this verses 1 through 9 that it came through the law of Moses and the directions of King David. 
they looked back to see what was told that they should do. You know, many times we talk about in the church that the Bible is our authority. That is what we see as the important thing that we go to to find out how to live. We live in a tradition that believes in sola scriptura, the Bible as our final authority. And some people wonder, where does it say that in Scripture that the Bible should be our authority? Well, when it says, according to the law of Moses, or according to the directions of King David, it's talking about the Bible. It's talking about the Torah. It's talking about chronicles and the histories. Here we see, even then, these people are looking to God's Word for authority. And it makes sense that as they do this in the seventh month, because that began the, the major holy days for the Israelites and all of these sacrifices. We are actually in that moment right now in September. The Feast of Trumpets, which is called in Jewish tradition Rosh Hashanah, started September 6th. And then the tenth day of the seventh month is called the Day of Atonement, that's called Yom Kippur, where they would have all these sacrifices to atone for their sin, for their sins to be forgiven. That just took place actually Wednesday and Thursday of last week. And then the 15th day of the seventh month is the Feast of Booths. That pl takes place over two weeks. Sukkoth is what it's called. And what the Israelites would do is that they would build these temporary shelters outside of their homes, and they would live in them for a week. And that would represent the time that they were in the wilderness and God provided for them while they were wandering in the wilderness. The Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, celebrating them coming out of exile. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, celebrating that they have been atoned from their sin. The Feast of Booth, Sukkoth, celebrating them in the wilderness, and God providing. If you have any questions and want to know about this, go to the book of Numbers. You can read that very exciting book. And there's times that's a little boring. But it talks about all of these sacrifices and the amount of sacrifices. It's crazy the amount of sacrifices they were called to do. And it says they followed all of it here in Ezra 3. You gotta wonder, they've just come out of exile and they spend three weeks blowing trumpets, making tons of sac um, sacrifices, and taking a break from work, and also living in these shelters. You've gotta wonder, what are they thinking? You would think you come into a place where you are fearing these other people that live in the land. You're fearing all these people around you, and what you end up doing is not starting with a wall that takes 80 years in the future. You don't start with building spears or building a, a, um, a military. Instead, you end up doing these kind of things, building an altar and just a foundation for a temple. Why start with that, with all the fear for all the other people that are around you? Anybody know John Wooden, the most winning basketball coach in history, who won seven straight championships with UCLA? 
Do you know how John Wooden starts, started every season as a coach? Do you start with, here's defensive posturing. Here's how you shoot a jump shot. Here's how you dunk. No, what did he start with? This is how you tie your shoes. Israel, this is the foundation. This is how you tie your shoes. You see, in the past, before Israel was conquered by Babylon, Jeremiah and Isaiah, what did they talk about? What happened when Israel was in fear of other nations? They tried treaties, they built their armies. They tried all these other things to stave off trouble. But they did not go to the Lord. And here they have learned. It says here that they were as one man. They were together making sacrifices, not divided. And they decided to spend their time seeing that their true foundation was the Lord. Christian or not, this morning. I think many of us are asking, what are we going to do in this cultural moment? Fears are all around us. One place we see it most manifest is how many of us think about our kids and our children. What are we going to do for our kids in this cultural moment? We got to give them the right education. We got to put them in the right activities to succeed. We've got to give them good manners and good morals. Hear me. Both Aaron and I spend lots of time thinking about these kind of issues. Our kids' education, what activities, saying please and thank you, right? Yes, yes. We work on those things. But Ellie, Morgan, Caroline, and Claire, that is not your foundation. Your foundation is in a faithful God. In tying your shoes, the basics is this. The preaching of the word, the Lord's Supper, and baptism. That sounds incredibly boring. And it sounds like that can deal with our cultural moment. But that is our foundation. I'm not stupid. I know people don't remember a sermon I preached six months ago. And I could take a serious hit like, man, my ego is bruised that you don't remember my sermons. I had a good friend. I was in despair about that. And he said to me, you know what? It's not that they remember your sermons it said that they're under the word every single week and you're telling them the truth of the gospel that it lays the foundation of what they need to hear to sustain them. I encourage you, if you question that kind of things, Luke Frymark is leading a group on Wednesday nights, on the 29th for the guys, You Are What You Love by James K. Smith. It talks about that exact thing. If you're not, you can't be a part of that group, I encourage you to get that book. You are what you love 
by James K. Smith that talks about what are the rhythms and the foundations that we live to make it through all of this life. What are we grasping for in this age? Blogs? Pundits? Political opinions? As we come back from this pandemic exile, might we change our routine like Israel did? And in the face of fear, live what God has called us to in faithfulness, what he's called us to do in his word? The world might think we're crazy. That we gather every week hearing the word, receiving the sacraments. But it is those things that really are the foundation to face the things that are going on around us. Are we gathering weekly? Do you do that? Right? That's the time for pastor guilt, right? That's what I'm supposed to say, because I want you here, right? That's the way to move the church forward, me just giving you guilt. No! What motivated the Israelites for all these sacrifices, for laying the foundation of the temple? What motivated them to do that? Guilt? Let's look, shall we? We see that they celebrated, specifically he doesn't even talk about the Feast of Trumpets or the Day of Atonement, all those things were done. But it, one thing it names is the Feast of Booths. It makes sense that it points out this one. Remember, they were slaves in Egypt. They came out of the land of Egypt and they sinned and they were in the wilderness. Even in their sin, God provided for them in the wilderness that, they were in, uh, that while they were in exile, they came into the land. Now, they are celebrating the Feast of Booths again. And think of how that might hit them. They were in exile in Babylon. The Lord brought them out of Babylon because even in their sin, they were brought into exile in Babylon. He brought them out in their, his faithfulness and now they are back in the land. And now they sing this antiphony. They sing responsibly. And they're singing praises. And what are they saying? For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. If you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know this is a word that comes up over and over again. In Hebrew and in the Old Testament, it's the word hased, God's steadfast love. It's a very hard word to interpret into English because it has such a rich and full meaning. I love what Daryl Bach says about that. Please pay attention as I say what he says. Wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God, this word has said. It means love, covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty in short. Acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. Picture these people responding in praise 
in a desolate land that has been taken over by three different nations and a temple that has been destroyed and they are singing, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness and your grace and your presence. Even though we have sinned and gone away from you, you have been faithful and returned us back once again. Think how much more clear it should be for us we don't have these sacrifices and celebrations and ceremonies because they have been fulfilled in Christ. Read Hebrews if you want to see that. The Feast of Trumpets, the idea of being freed from exile, we have been redeemed from exile by Jesus. The Day of Atonement, the sacrificing of the Lamb, we have the Lamb of God that was sacrificed for us. The wandering in the wilderness. We have a king that wandered in the wilderness and took the temptations of the devil so that we might live in freedom. The foundation of the temple. We have the foundation of Christ so that we can be living stones, his church. I have a sense that Bruce Springsteen's anthems, the anthems of being people being left behind, workers in America, people that feel like, is it ever going to get better for me? That anthem seems to be permeating a lot of culture more than normal. And some of you might feel that anthem is your song. You might love the boss for that reason. Maybe you have no idea who the boss is, but you just love that music that speaks of how life has passed you by. Or how you've done things in your past that you're like, there's no way I'm going to be free. I'm living in it, and it's just the way it is. Other people can have good lives. I, I just won't. You might feel that life has been botched for you. You are in good company. Here is a people that were warned for 200 years to live differently and they didn't. They were taken over by nation after nation because of their sin. It caused their downfall and then brought into um, exile in Babylon. But what did God do? In his steadfast love, he brought them out of exile and brought them back into the land because he loves them and he cared for them. How much more has Jesus forgiven you and given him his, your, his, his grace to you no matter what you have experienced in the past? Christ offers his grace to you. You can live in that power, in that praise, even when maybe your life looks desolate all around you, that you can shout to praise to him, knowing that he is one that is faithful and steadfast, no matter if you're falling into the same thing again and again and again. Picture the scene. 
Picture what it was like. Here are these people. And this temple that used to be glorious. This city that used to be, you know, the gem of the Middle East. In ruins. And now all they have is a foundation laid. All they have is the altar. You can imagine they're probably outside. Maybe they had some kind of covering in stones that probably were not as good as the first temple. And in the midst of all that, they are shouting and praising and glorifying God. Yet, at the same time, there are people there that remember the old temple. And they are crying and weeping. What are we to make of them? Some think maybe this is just ceremonial weeping. Or some think it's a weeping of happy tears. I don't think the text speaks to that. Instead, I think it speaks that they are sad because of what used to be. Some might say they're weeping because they're repenting. I don't think that is the case either. It might be. But both Haggai and Zechariah, two prophets that wrote in this time about this instance, talked about how their attitude at that time was not right in the laying of the temple foundation. Those that were weeping. It was almost like they had this nostalgia of what was. And now they are in this state of sadness. They are singing the song of glory days. Oh, how it used to be, Grand Jerusalem. Oh, how the temple used to be glorious. Now look at it. But was it glory days? those days back then. Sure, they had the land. Sure, they had the armies. Sure, they had their allies. Sure, they had the temple. But they were in rebellion with God. But the good news is, what drowns them out is the praising and shouting. Here is a group that had none of that that lived in exile, the young people, but when they came back, they did not weep, but they praised God even in the midst of all the trouble that was around them. Are some of you singing glory days? My relationship, my career will never be what they were. This nation has seen its best days. It's all downhill for us now. The high life of my Christian faith, where I had all these amazing experiences and emotions, I don't have those anymore. Please hear me, and this is what we've been singing all morning long. Please hear me. Could God have put you individually in a hard season so that you might see where your joy really lies. Could God have put our nation in this tough spot 
right now so we might see where greatness truly comes from. Could all that nostalgia of Christianity of summer camp or your favorite Christian song or whatever Christian experience you have, might that not be the true foundation, but instead you have to go to the source, which is Jesus Christ and his joy. For so long, the church in America has lived with amazing wealth, cultural influence, amazing church programs, I wonder if we need to go back to the true source of our strength. The preaching of the word. Communion. Baptism. Should I finish the poem? In fact, I think I'm going to go down tonight to the well. And I'm going to drink till I get my fill. And I hope when I get old, I don't sit around thinking about it. But I probably will. Yeah, just sitting back, trying to recapture a little of the glory. Well, time slips away and leaves you with nothing, mister. But boring stories of glory days. I'm calling you to be of a part of a story that is not boring, but a story of redemption. You want to drink from a real well that will never dry up? Do you want to sing for joy even when things are hard? Do you want to look at glory days that are not in the past, but is what to come? Come and drink. Come and eat. Come and partake in the foundation, in the Pascal Lamb, in the one that will give us glory days in the future.